Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. It can be easy to forget amongst its glistening skyscrapers, bustling streets, and neon lights, but the Pearl River Delta used to be a haven for banditry and piracy. As the authority of Imperial China waned, pirate fleets based out of Guangdong province roamed the waves, raiding traders and taking captives. One of these captives, and later pirates, was Cheng Yat So, the wife of Cheng Yat, who rose from humble beginnings to eventually bring together the competing pirate fleets into a confederation. She is also the star of Larry Fane's first novel, The Flower Boat Girl. Larry starts the story of the pirate queen from her abduction by Cheng Yat and writes of how she gains a foothold among the pirate fleets. Larry is an award-winning artist and writer based in Hong Kong. He is well-known for his long-running daily political comic strip, Lily Wong, which satirized life in Hong Kong before and after the handover to China until he retired the cartoon in 2007. Fane's work has appeared in Time, The Economist, The New York Times, The Atlantic, and other publications around the world. He also directed cartoons for Walt Disney Television and Cartoon Network. He is a McDowell Fellow and three-time recipient of Amnesty International Human Rights Press Awards. Today, we'll talk about Cheng Yat-so, early 19th century China, and pirate fleets. We'll talk about how Larry wrote the book and what he learned from being one of Hong Kong's most prominent cartoonists. So, Larry, thank you so much for joining me today on the Asian Review of Books podcast. Perhaps it's best to start with the star of the book, uh, Cheng Yat-so, perhaps sometimes better known uh, as Zheng Yisao. What about her history makes her so interesting as the launching point for a novel? Well, thanks for having me. I found this character to be a fascinating person, more for who she was than what she did. And I, I can explain that by saying I, I first heard about her from uh, a friend of mine who's a an old sailor from Tayo on Lantau Island. He comes from generations of boat people. And I was talking to him one day, and he mentioned that his grandmother used to sing this folk song about a lady pirate who was uh, invincible and stood up to various navies and won, and she was considered, she was portrayed in this folk song as kind of a folk hero. And it intrigued me. I couldn't, I, I, I wanted to know what the, the words of the song were, but he couldn't remember. And so from that moment on, I was, uh, was very fascinated to find out her story. I looked up everywhere I could to find this folk song and I, I found other mentions of it, but I never found the words. But then as I started learning about the the basic facts of her life of course it made a really really interesting story about this woman who had been sold into prostitution and then kidnapped by pirates and then um eventually worked her way into the to the whole pirate economy becoming the brains behind her husband's operation and then uniting all the pirates at the south china coast into this confederation, which she eventually took over. It's very interesting. It's a very dramatic story. And, you know, you can find 
kind of summaries of this story in a lot of places. But what interested me more than just the facts of the story was what kind of person was this that could overcome these kinds of horrible life circumstances and become such a powerful and influential figure. Um, and so it kind of became a, a quest of my kind of a hobby. And I uh, kept looking for a book about her and I couldn't find a book about her. And so um, I think it was the author Tony Morrison said that if there's a book that you want to read and no one's written it yet, then it's your duty to write it. And so I wrote this book as an exploration to try to figure out who this person was. And um, I'm not sure if that answers your question, but um, this is the kind of thing that I, I've been trying to find out. She must have been very, very intelligent, very clever, charismatic, um, you know, judging by the fact that she'd been a prostitute for a number of years, she must have been very good at reading men and therefore able to manipulate them. And so um, there's just so much interesting about her that, that I found. And of course, this was a local story that she was based in Tong Chong um, for part of her career. And that made it even more fascinating for me. Well, it's 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 a it's in some ways it's, it's a it's a standard story, right? I mean, someone someone comes from humble beginnings, sometimes forced into a, a a life of organized crime, and then eventually, through their own wits and guile and, and gumption, take over the organization. And sometimes that ends badly. In fact, in many of these stories, it ends badly. Although in uh, in Cheng Yat So's case, it seems to end pretty well. <laughs> Yeah, it's true. A lot of them end badly. I, in fact, I studied The Godfather as I was writing this book to see, because that's another story that's really not so much about organized crime, but about the character of Michael Corleone and how his ascent into the crime organization eventually corrupted his soul. And so I found that really interesting <clears throat> to study that um, because... Well, you know, it depends how you want to interpret it and look at her. There's not, there's really very, very few firsthand accounts of her. And so we can't go into it saying, oh, she was definitely this kind of person. However, if you look online, you can often find her. And, and, and I should have an aside here that if you look online, she's known as Zheng Yi Sao, which is the Mandarin pronunciation of her name. But of course, she was from the boat people community who were all Cantonese. And so she spoke Cantonese, and every character in this book was a Cantonese speaker. So this is why I've adopted the Cantonese names for all of them, because that's what they would have called each other. Even though I'm writing in English, I use the Cantonese pronunciations, because throughout the book, I'm trying to go for as much accuracy as possible. But getting back to who she was, there's, uh, she's often portrayed as uh, this conniving, um, conniving but very intelligent woman who either was kidnapped by this pirate captain and then immediately demanded 
a share in his business and, and a partnership uh, before she would agree to go with him. Or other accounts describe her as a madam who actually owned part of uh, a brothel. And in her greedy, ambitious way, she um, got involved in a marriage of convenience with the pirate captain so they could merge their businesses. And yeah, these are maybe plausible, but they're totally made up. There's no evidence whatsoever to point to either of those. And so what I did find out from firsthand accounts, and there's very few, and interestingly, all the firsthand accounts of her come from foreigners who were captives of the pirates. Um, In those accounts, we see kind of a softer side to her where she was um, very uh, sympathetic to one British captive in particular and kept getting him uh, extra coats and blankets and food. Uh, there's another account of a, which is not in this book, uh, of a uh, teenage Dutch boy who was brought in as kind of a shipload of captives, and he was an orphan. And she took pity on him and sort of adopted him for the about 15 months that he was kept with the pirates. And so we see kind of a softer, very motherly side to her. So I don't see her as one of these kinds of people who is just, you know, consumed by greed and ambition. So when I was tracing her life and looking at different aspects of things that she did, the question was always in my mind, why? She was... So we we don't know for sure, for example, that she was sold by her family into into sexual slavery. But if you look at uh, other accounts of around that time period, it was really rather common. She came from boat people stock. The boat people, the uh, the Tanka, which they were derisively known as, were the lowest class in China, in Imperial China like the untouchables in India. They were that low. They were the only class of people in Imperial China who were forbidden by law from getting an education or holding civil service jobs. And so they were, and then of course they were looked down upon by the Puntis, the land-based Chinese. And so they were stuck with fishing for a living or transporting goods. Fishing was seasonal. They were poor. They were, it was, poverty was rife throughout the boat people community. So when, when fishing was out of season, a lot of them turned to petty piracy and others sold their daughters to get some cash. And so it made absolute sense that this was how she ended up being, joining a flower boat. The flower boats were these uh, floating brothels. The most famous ones in China were in Guangzhou. And so, um, again, we have accounts that she did work on the flower boats. And how else would she have gotten there? Um, Surely some poor women throughout China would go into lives of prostitution out of desperation. But among the boat people, that wasn't so common. The most common way was to be sold by the family. So so I look at, at this, and then I look at the fact that she then later joined the pirates, 
And again, I used a lot of extrapolating by looking at other accounts at the time. And without going to a long-winded story, I concluded that the most plausible way that she joined the pirates was that she was abducted and not abducted from one of these flower boats because the flower boats actually, they were clients of the pirates. These pirates did get involved in human trafficking. So it's very unlikely that they would have raided a, a flower boat and taken some of the young women away. So again, most likely she had left the flower boats and, gone back to her home village or some other village where she was abducted. So then the question arose for me, why didn't she leave? If she was kidnapped, if she'd had her own life, what kept her there? And I mean, of course, maybe that's a dumb question that um, she was kept there. But afterward, she got involved in, in their pirate's business, as we know. And this was not a common thing to do. So what motivated her? What changed her? What made her turn around from being, at best, a reluctant captive forced into marriage to someone who did become a partner of this pirate captain? And so, again, all these things kind of mixed together, and I had to do a lot of contemplation about what motivated each move of hers. I was helped by the fact that my wife is a psychologist. She's local Chinese and she's a psychologist. So we'd often have long, long discussions. We'd take walks after dinner and I'd say, okay, she did this. She did that. What's the personality type? What motivated her? And so a lot of my conclusions about who she was came from those kinds of discussions. And so, um, you know, this, this was how I, operated in writing this book, rather than just reporting the events, I was much more interested in the motivations and the personality development. So I'd like to talk a bit more about what this period of history is like for China. Um, you know, what's happening on the ground? What's the, what's the, what are the politics like? What are the relations between societies like? Um, what's going on in this part of the world at this point in time. Okay, first of all, we can talk about the maritime world, which is what the book is concerned with. So at this time, you know, this is kind of mid to late Qing dynasty. And, you know, China goes through these waves where uh, a new dynasty takes over and is very strong and there's a big flourishing in the economy and, and everything. And then it starts to go into this long, slow decline into corruption. And all of Chinese history is, is one wave like this after another. And so we were in kind of the, the down, starting the, the downward slide into uh, the, of the Qing dynasty, you know, toward weakness and corruption. Um, at the time, the, the imperial court in Peking was not very interested in what was going on on the coast. I mean, this came after several hundred years of kind of de-emphasizing coastal trade, coastal defenses, and of China kind of reining itself in and isolating itself. But at this particular time, there were a lot of... Um, 
insurrections going on in the Western frontiers. And so the, the government was much more concerned with those than with anything that was happening on the coast. And so the, the, the naval forces in this region were very poorly funded and understaffed. And so it was, you know, it was a golden era for piracy because the, uh, the coastal defenses were so weak and they were very corrupt. Um, quite often what would happen is the, a patrol would go out and they might see pirates and they'd kind of play this game where the, the naval patrol would fire a few cannons, not particularly at the pirates. The pirates would then retreat and later there'd be a meeting where some money would change hands, uh, often on one of these islands way uh, at the mouth of the, the Pearl River Delta. And so there was a lot of, you know, nod, nod, wink, wink, where the, the naval forces were on the take. And then there was a succession of governors. The governor general had a, a palace in Guangzhou. And these governors were also much more concerned with economic affairs and with land-based issues. And they just really couldn't be bothered too much to, to deal with the pirates because the only way they knew how was by fighting them with the naval forces. And every time the pirates destroyed you know, two or three naval ships, maybe they had the money to rebuild one. And so they didn't want to risk, mm-hmm. um, risk and, those. And, and when you're talking about pirates, this kind of leads into another question that I, that I had was, you know, I mean, we, we call them pirates because that's what they did. They engaged in piracy. But um, I mean, obviously, I think when you say pirates, uh, a lot of people, at least outside of Asia, have your standard, you know, pirates of the Caribbean image in their heads. Um I guess what made these groups in southern China um, were they, and, and how were they different from what people might normally think of as as pirates? Well, at okay, at the the time at the beginning of this book, so we're talking around eighteen oh one. First of all, there was no really big pirate organization. There were a lot of independent fleets, the largest of which maybe had about thirty ships. And, well, you want to contrast the Pirates of the Caribbean, Blackbeard, who's considered the most fearsome pirate in history, um, at his peak, at his absolute peak, he had 20 ships and about 500 men. And I should point out that Jing Yisau, or Jing Yatsou, however you want to call her, at her peak had 1,500 ships and 18,000 people under her command. But at the, at the start of this book, 1801, the the pirates had just returned from Anam, which is now Vietnam, where they'd been serving in a uh, as mercenaries to support uh, the government there. And they came back, and it was just a bunch of small fleets. And what they would do was they would stop commercial shipping, and they would basically steal goods that they would go on to sell. And so they would steal silks or or hardwoods. They were, salt was a big thing. They'd go into ports and steal salt barges, and then they'd go off and trade them to uh, middlemen that they would meet some of the outlying islands or in Taiyo on Lantau Island. Um, they didn't, 
So when they would hijack these ships, sometimes they would keep them, sometimes they would let them go. It wasn't really the picture of what we see with the uh, the Caribbean pirates who um, essentially ran this kind of lawless place in the Bahamas um, and were quasi, well, I don't know, what, what was the word? They were buccaneers. They were, you know, kind of a quasi naval force who would only pick on ships from a, from the, you know, the, they would only pick on Spanish shipping, for example, because they were, uh, in some ways, supporting the British Empire. You oh, didn't oh, see oh, any politics uh, going oh, on. Privateers, like I think I was thinking of. Privateers, that's right. That's the word. I'm sorry. So, you know, with the Chinese pirates, there was no politics. They weren't looking for power. They weren't looking for territory. Um, they were just, most of them were out there just trying to to get some money. So it, it was not a glamorous life. And and also for that reason, you know, another difference with the, the Western pirates is that Chinese never glamorized these pirates. They never, you know, saw them as this romantic, colorful, semi-revolutionaries like you see the, the pirates of the Caribbean, the way they're often glamorized. And that's another reason we don't know a lot about them, because in Chinese history and literature, no one wrote about them. What we know about them from the Chinese side comes from magistrates' records from when they were uh, when they were caught and convicted. Uh, so this was this was not considered a romantic uh, community. They were just criminals. They were lowly criminals. But as you know, they were much more successful and much more powerful than than the pirates that did get romanticized in literature and media and things like that. Well, they were. In fact, this is when when Zheng Yatso comes into the picture <clears throat> and she started, and again, I believe that she had something to do with the development of their pass system, which they, they set up where they would sell protection passes to coastal villages and to individual trading ships or trading companies that own ships so that and they would actually give them these pieces of paper which said that uh they had paid protection pass and therefore they could they were immune from any kind of raids or tribute after that and she and her husband organized the different pirate fleets to cooperate in this so that if one pirate group sold a protection pass then the other pirate groups had to respect that. And then this was, they eventually joined in this confederation, which she helped organize. And so the effect of that, and this was a very interesting effect of that, is that um, the raiding and the violence pretty much came almost to an end. The only ships that got attacked were the ones who refused to pay the protection fees. And so it's sort of ironic that this that she and her husband brought peace to the South China coast for the first time in about 300 years. They, they controlled the coast. The villages didn't have to worry. The, the uh, shipping companies didn't have to worry. And, of course, this really upset the government. But what could they do? 
the pirates became the de facto government of the South China coast without ever really seeking any kind of political power. Um, so I'd like to shift now to uh, your experience in, in writing the book. You talked a little bit about kind of the research and um, and the work you did in kind of uncovering the story, uncovering perhaps the psychology of the characters involved. Um, but I did want to note kind of something from, from your background. I mean, um, you're, you're best known, I think, for, for your cartoons, especially the Lily Wong cartoons. Um, you've obviously done other writing since, um, since you retired the cartoon in 07. Um, but I guess, again, like what, what drove you to, to start writing this novel? And was there anything you learned from your time as a cartoonist that was helpful in writing and developing The Flower Boat Girl? Sure. Okay. That's a couple questions. Okay. First of all, the cartooning is, is, it's all storytelling. Okay. I never could write gag cartoons. You know, a lot of, there's different kinds of cartoons. There's, there's the kinds like Garfield, which is a gag a day. And I, I never could do that. My cartoons, if you look at them are very character driven and story driven every week, there was a little story and it kind of, and the whole, the ensemble of characters developed over the years. And so that was my interest in cartooning was storytelling. And so in that way, it's has a lot in common with screenwriting and other kinds of writing. Um, but I should actually preface this by saying my, by saying that my original ambition was to write historical fiction long, long, long ago when I was in university, I studied history and I went to a school which was a little bit uh, offbeat. It was all independent studies, and everyone had to do a thesis. And my thesis was a 400-page uh, historical novel about my grandfather's life. And he, he grew up in Azerbaijan. And, it was, uh, and I studied under a historian. And this was my original ambition was to write this kind of fiction. And, you know, life happens and things go in different directions. And I was blessed with the opportunities to do cartooning, which uh, something I've been doing since I was a child. So coming back to writing this book was almost like going full circle back to my original idea of writing historical fiction. Because it's really the stories and the characters that, that uh, fascinate me, not, not the drawing and uh, or anything else but as to how my cartooning benefited me there's no doubt that many many years of writing comic strips really helped hone my craft in certain respects so there, there's two ways in particular i was thinking about this um two things i really got out of the cartooning one was writing dialogue so in a comic strip you know it appears really tiny in a newspaper or on a web page and each panel often has words in it. And the more words you have in the panel, the less room for the drawing. So the ideal comic strip has the minimum number of words. And so I spent hours, I mean, literally hours every day, just to hone down the dialogue in those comic strips. Those little comic strips that took three seconds to read, each took about six hours to write and draw. And so I learned how to create dialogue that was used 
only the minimum necessary words. Each word had to carry its weight, while at the same time, it still had to come across as natural dialogue, and it had to communicate the personality of the character, all in as few words as possible. And this is something that screenwriters really have to concentrate on. Whereas if, if you're a novelist, sure, you don't have to worry about space and you can go on and on and on, but that's not a very good strategy. And so I, I, I know how to work on dialogue. And of course, a lot of work went into honing down the dialogue in this book, but I'd already had that kind of experience from the comic strips in, in working on dialogue and make every word carry its weight. The other thing from comic strips uh, that I really put into practice, I think, in this novel, was how to introduce secondary or minor characters. So you can, you can make a, a walk-on character very generic, but then that walk-on character is uninteresting. So in the comic strips, um, I'd often have characters who appeared only once or maybe appeared for just a couple of days. And... I put a lot of effort into making them stand out. Each had a personality. Each had a certain look. I had a little notebook. I used to sit in uh, hotel um, lobbies sketching people as they walked past. So I'd have this whole, we called it a morgue of characters. And so each of them had their personality built in. And then each of them, I'd try to give a little quirk to either their dialogue or something they would do. Uh, visually in the comic strip. And so I did that also in in The Flower Boat Girl. So there's a lot of characters that kind of walk in for a scene. And it seemed to me a waste of an opportunity to not develop them in a few broad brushstrokes to give them a bit of personality. And so again, this is something that a lot of, writer, a lot of writers struggle with. I've talked to a lot of writers who kind of resent having to put that effort into these tiny walk-on characters. But for me, it comes a little bit more naturally. So I had one more question. Um, you know, obviously in, in reading the book, you come across names of places you recognize if you're from this part of the world, um, especially as they, especially as they all move to Tongcheng, which of course for now is a, is a big housing development. They talk about the tiny Island of Chep Black Cock and there's nothing there. Um, which of course for us in Hong Kong, it's, the airport now. Um, but I guess in kind of as, as you were writing the book and doing research with the book, was it strange thinking about what this part of the world, what Hong Kong and the, what Hong Kong and Macau, which, which, which in the book you call Omun, um, and all these other places in the Pearl River Delta, what they all look, must've looked like before the whole region went through its massive economic development. Well, you know, something interesting when let's talk about Tong Chong for a moment. I've lived on Lantau Island for many years since before the airport or the Tung Chung uh, development was uh, finalized, even as I, before even the plans were finalized. And I used to go hiking and go out to, uh, to Tung Chung. And back then, it was this tiny little village surrounded by mud and... <laughs> Interesting thing, I found a photograph of Tung Chong taken from a mountaintop in around 1930, and it looked pretty much like I remember it. So a lot of things are still there. If you, if you look under the surface, you can see 
um, what they were like still, especially on the outlying islands. So I remember, I remember it very well, uh, how Tung Chung was. And, you know, it's easy to imagine, especially since Lantau was such a backwater, even until the 1960s and, and in some respects, even until the late 1980s when I first came out here. So it's easy to imagine that some things haven't changed. I mean, for example, where I live in Mui Wan, Lantau Island, there's a walkway that goes past my house, which used to be the pedestrian superhighway on Lantau Island. For hundreds of years, this was the one walkway that connected South and North Lantau, and that was, and it's still there. And, it, and in part, you can still see some of the original cobblestones from that path. And so, some of that stuff is still there. There's still artifacts um, on Lantau where you can see some of the things that that used to exist. I mean, of course, a lot of things have changed, and so I did rely a lot on uh, travelers' memoirs describing the areas and old paintings and sketches and photographs to, to help me kind of reimagine what these places were like. And I traveled to some of them. Um, I also, this sort of fits into your question. I, I had one real serendipitous encounter one time when I was walking to Tung Chung uh, and I got lost in the woods with my wife and we, because we had, we decided to take a, a side route that we'd never taken before. And we just got lost into a heavily wooded section. And we ran into this old woman who was gathering twigs and leaves. And we asked her, we told her we're lost. We asked her if she could point us to Tung Chung. And she said, yeah, if you help me carry my baskets, then I'll bring you back to my village. And then I'll point you how to get to Tung Chung. So as we were walking, you know, we were talking to her, and she was in her <clears throat> late 80s at the time. <clears throat> Excuse me. She was in her late 80s at the time. And so I'd already been starting to research this story, and the numbers started churning in my head, and I realized that she must have been a young girl back in the 1930s when this region had its last big wave of piracy with, you know, with sailing junks and all that. So I asked her, when you were little, did you ever see any pirates? And she looked at me and said, she said, how does this Guaylo know about the pirates? Well, it turns out that she narrowly missed being abducted by pirates. She, her little village on North Lantau coast was raided by a notorious pirate gang and they came in and wrecked the village uh, several houses went on fire. She saw them pulling away women and young boys. Her mother finally hid her under the uh, under the stove in in their little kitchen in their hut, and so she escaped being uh, being abducted. But for me, this was pure gold because she described to me firsthand an actual pirate raid in a village, which the way she described it sounded like it was little different than a village from a hundred years earlier. And so, in fact, the most of the details of what she told me went into the first chapter of this book where I describe a, a raid. So all that is real right from the, this woman's mouth. And so 
you know, I was lucky in that regard to be able to go into the past through people like this and with the help of some historians, with the help of mountains and mountains of documents that uh, I kept finding. So I think with that, that ends our interview with Larry Fain, author of The Flower Boat Girl. But Larry, one actual final question. Uh, where can people find your work and what's next for you? The, the Flower Boat Girl is available in Hong Kong, in bookazine shops and other shops. And from June 28th, it's also available online from Amazon, Book Depository, and all the, the usual online book retailers. So, yeah, please look for it. What's next is the follow-up book. This is such a massive, epic story that um, I couldn't fit it all in one book unless I wrote a 900-page book, which I wasn't going to do. And so the Flower Boat Girl traces her development from her childhood up until she took over as the leader of the pirates all up and down the South China coast. Book two takes off from there. And it's just as interesting a story where she kind of learns how to be a leader and makes some mistakes along the way. And so in a way, this is a kind of an exploration of how to learn leadership uh, when you've had no experience with it before. So she learns to be a leader. She um, finally meets her match when the government uh, uh, appoints a new governor general who finally takes a more clever and nuanced approach into trying to put down the pirates. And so it becomes a battle of wits between her and him, which is really fascinating. And I don't really want to give away the rest of it, but, um, you know, she also, it's also an exploration of her marriage to uh, Zheng Po Zai, who had been her, uh, her adopted son and her husband's former male concubine, who she married. And so there's an exploration of the development of their relationship. And then this big, dramatic ending where they confront three navies in Tongchong. I don't mind giving this away. The and, and I don't understand why this isn't in the history book. The second biggest naval battle in history in terms of the number of ships involved was in Tongchong in 1810. And this was between this pirate group and the combined uh, Portuguese and Chinese navies and later the the English got involved. And so there's, there's a lot of interesting events, which again, to me, led to a lot of really fascinating character development of how she dealt with these challenges, how she dealt with leadership and power, and how she finally retired from it all unscathed. And so that's book two, which I already have the first draft of, and I hope it'll be out next year. 2022. Well, I very much look forward to reading it. Um, so you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewOfBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. 
Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find countless other author interviews at the New Books Network at newbooksnetwork.com. We hope you subscribe and you're listening to the Asian Review of Books podcast, now found on all your favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, and share us with your friends if you want to continue to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, join us for an interview with Professor Marie Favreau, author of The Horde, How Mongols Change the World. Uh, But before then, thank you so much, Larry, for joining me today. It's my pleasure.